Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Way, back again for another episode of our Views from the Clock End podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Kaya Kainak. How are you doing, mate? You good? You well? I'm very well. Whenever uh, whenever it's a North London derby victory, I think we get even better. So, very good mood here uh, mm. and hopefully a very good mood for you too. Indeed, yeah. No, wearing the red hoodie with pride uh, today, very much so, because that is indeed the colour of not just North London, but I think London in general. Mm. Um, and we'll talk maybe a bit more about our West London rivals shortly uh, on the show. But uh, yes, the North London derby, you were there. Uh, how was how was the not outside of the game? How was the experience of travelling to to enemy territory and all of that? Um, I tell you what, as as much as it's a shame of the team that plays in it, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is a very nice arena. Mm. Um, the the food there very good what did you um, have what did you have they had, uh roasted gammon wow that's, that's not the uh the social media type of gammon that's the 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 <laughs> tasty meat uh it was really good um, don't say tasty with, meat too many times so yeah tasty <laughs> meat um with mashed potato uh kimchi cauliflower cheese gravy wow. full works they Oh, your plate a mile high, chicken burgers at half time. It was very, very few complaints on that front from me. But uh we were all there for the game, of course. That's 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 uh that's mm. the professional line. That's what I'll go for. But I thought they would have said Coco Van considering the badge, but uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next year, maybe next year. Maybe, yeah. But no, of course, as an experience though, hostilities around the stadium, how the, how was the atmosphere? Oh, you, you meant, uh, see, I thought you were just asking me about the food. So oh, I was curious as <laughs> to that as well. I'm just curious as to the uh, the fan experience um, as well. To be honest, I think the, so the press entrance is far away from the Arsenal entrance. And mm. uh, I think they do a very deliberate job of, I came in by the overground to, um, uh, to gosh, White Hart Lane Station. Mm. And they, they tend to make quite a conscious effort to keep Arsenal fans away from that bit if possible and they took corn them off where possible so the arsenal fans were entering to a different side to me but to be honest and i was speaking to our spurs correspondent ali gold who was there at the game with me and he was telling me the general mood around spurs right now is is sort of apathy to what they're seeing on the pitch i think they're they're more focused on trying to get their board out and obviously daniel levy is the the focus of a lot of their their anger right now a lot of people want Conte out too. So I think um, generally the mood wasn't so much focused on uh, the game for, for Spurs fans. I think mm. for them it was about trying to trying to make a point to their owners and they were going to give them this one shot and obviously you get behind the team in a derby. But the atmosphere was, was, was pretty tepid. I mean, Spurs started strongly, but beyond that, it was tepid. And I think Spurs have, have gotten, the fans in particular, have gotten pretty uh, tired of the... They're pretty drab football they're getting served up week in, week out. And that led to, I mean, listen, the acoustics at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium are superb. So when the atmosphere builds, it builds, but it didn't. And I think that's partly because of what Arsenal did, but I think, you know, um, also because of how poor Spurs were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they were pretty dark. I've never quite seen a derby away from home that we've dominated in such a way for such a long time. And I know yeah. it's been nine years, obviously, since we actually managed the last win in the league at Spurs' grounds. But I mean, I remember games, you know, with Harry Redknapp and uh, Andre Vyash Boas, etc., back in the day that, you know, we didn't dominate in the same way that we dominated this game, even though we may have turned out with wins. It was just, it reminded me, ironically, of the Bournemouth performance earlier on in the season, where you just limited them to next to nothing. 
it was only kind of a 10 minute spell towards the end of the game where Spurs really, you know, had some bigger opportunities. And when called upon Ramsdale did well, and that's really what I want to start because I think Ramsdale shone in the game maybe more so than than, than others. Um, it was an amazing performance from everybody, of course. But I think if you're going to look at individuals, Ramsdale is the immediately one that stands out. Is this his best performance in an Arsenal shirt, do you think? Yeah, I was discussing that with, um, I'm in the office today, and I was discussing that with another one of our colleagues, Tashan Denner and Elaine, and we were, we were sort of saying maybe Leicester uh, last season, the amazing James Madison save is potentially up there, but in terms mm. of a performance across the 90 minutes from Aaron Ramsdale, I don't think you get much better, and um, I spoke about this in my talking points this morning. The, the thing is with Ramsdale, I'm sure he'd admit this himself, he's not been at his best this season, I don't think. I think most Arsenal fans would probably accept that too. We all saw him hit tremendous heights when he first came in, but he has sort of, you know, tailed off slightly. Uh, mm. I think 2022 was his best year, but it seems that he's really rising to the challenge in 2023 and he's he's looking good so far. For what impressed me most was how switched on he was because Arsenal were dominant for the entire first half. Spurs hardly got forward and on the couple of occasions that they did get forward Ramsdale was alert he was off his line quickly and then in the second half you know it would have been easy for um, Spurs I guess relative dominance in terms of territory a little bit more because Arsenal dropped back they didn't need to to score any more goals it would have been easy for that to turn into nervousness for Arsenal I think in the past it probably would have done but Ramsdale was so dominant at the back. He was so calming. He claimed most crosses. There were a few he punched away. He made the right decisions as opposed to, you see what Hugo Lloris did at the other end. And I think it was it was probably his best display in an Arsenal shirt. It might be, um, it might be hyperbolic and a bit of recency bias, mm. but I can't think of one better. I think he was yeah. superb. And I think for Arsenal, the fact that he's not been at his best and he's now finding his form at just the right time when the press is really starting to, to ramp up, that's a good sign. Because, you know, lots of players, they tend to wilt under the pressure. Ramsdale seems to be rising even taller to it. And I'm sure we'll get on to what happened after the game. And it's a shame that that's probably what his match will be remembered for. But in the 90 minutes, he was superb. And I think we shouldn't forget that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I consider Ramsdale obviously such, in terms of the players that we brought in in the last couple of years, the mentality from a player like him, so young, so hungry and demanding of those around him. He looks unflappable. You know, yes, he's got a little bit maybe of something in him because still a young keeper. We've seen a couple of errors in his game in the past. I remember the, was it the Bournemouth game at home last season where he had that chaotic bit on the right-hand side of the box where he came out and Josh King tried to get a shot, hit the side netting. Um, maybe my memory's a bit long, <laughs> longer serving. <laughs> I, 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 remember, I think it was Watford, maybe. Was it Watford? Josh King yeah, was Yeah, Bournemouth weren't in the Premier League last season, so I'd probably say Watford. Yes, so uh, it was definitely Josh King, and he's definitely yes. played for both Bournemouth and Watford. Yeah, so. yes, yes. <laughs> so yes, that's probably where that's coming from. You're right, though. I think it was Watford. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that there's been those. There's he has those couple of moments of of chaoticness. I suppose is not a word, but you know what I mean. And I think that in that sense, he can sometimes draw a bit of doubt. And and this season in particular, I think that with everyone being so good, and last season. He stood out because he, you know, he was new and he was producing these distributions that were just so excellent, and some of the saves he was pulling off were great. But this season, he's had a defence that is, you know, now got Ben White right back. Now you've got William Saliba in there. Zinchenko's coming into the team regularly, um, and Sam Dean actually produced a piece, uh, a really good piece uh, about Zinchenko as well. And uh, he talked in that piece talked about um, how defensively Arsenal have a better record with him in the team, despite many believing that Zinchenko, of course, 
makes us a bit more vulnerable. It doesn't turn out to be true. But Ramsdale, I think, has benefited from having those in front of him. But that means he doesn't have to do as much. And maybe we're therefore not talking about him as much. But when yeah. called upon, he was he was great. Listen, um, he's, got, he's got a Messiah cool. complex like all goalkeepers do. We saw this with Edison in the Manchester derby <laughs> uh, when he came charging yeah. out and nearly allowed Rashford to score. All goalkeepers have got that in them. And mm. maybe it's a symptom of sort of intense proactivity where he's, he wants so much to succeed that he tries to influence things that he shouldn't. But that's something that comes with experience. And like you say, he's very young for a goalkeeper. He's only 24. He's been around for a while, so we forget that. But he's he's a very young goalkeeper and he's only going to get better. And the more consistency he finds in the game and the more sort of judging of when... Another thing that really impressed me was his sort of understanding of when it was time to sort of fall on the floor and waste time, mm. when it was time to restart the game quickly. Stuff like that, that comes with experience and he's getting better at that with each passing game. No, he absolutely is. Uh, there was a piece of unsavouriness uh, at the end of the game involving Ramsdale. The Spurs fan, of course, that uh, launched himself out of the seats and, and toward Ramsdale with a kick. Uh, it was kind of a pathetic kick, uh, if anything, and has probably cost him the rest of his life in a football stadium, to be honest, uh, for one moment of, of craziness. What did you, I mean, being in the stadium, I'm surprised it was pretty difficult to see what was going on initially um, yeah. from where you were. But obviously, seeing the pictures and the reaction to that, what have you made of the incident? It was right at the other end for us. So it was a bit tricky to, um, to see what was going on live. But obviously, the replays came through. We've all got monitors in front of us. They came through pretty quickly and we all became pretty aware of, of what had happened. Uh, I think Richarlison had a role to play yeah. in this. Um, he, he was clearly wound up from the very start. He was starting fights with Tommy Asu, of all people, on the bench. Yeah. Um, refused to shake Martinelli's hand. Refused to shake Martinelli's hand, exactly. <laughs> what a childish Mark. guy. Oh, um, yeah, yeah I, I think I described him as being like Scrappy-Doo in, in my talking points, just having that intimidation, that lack of intimidation factor, but wanting to be the hard man, but when it comes down to it, not actually doing anything. The whole let me out kind of thing was just a bit pathetic. And mm. the idea that the man who was doing keepy-uppies against Nottingham Forest earlier in the season is suddenly the virtue of the celebration police, that makes no sense to me. And the hypocrisy of him coming in and trying to tell Aaron Ramsdale not to do what Aaron Ramsdale does every week. Mm. You know, yeah. you know, you might not like it, but he's been getting dogs abused from the Spurs fans the whole game. He's allowed to turn around and point to his badge. It doesn't, you know, it shouldn't warrant A, him being shoved in the face by a fellow professional, and B, being whacked, um, kicked in the back by one of the fans. And you talk about being banned from the stadium. I think, you know, the police might even get involved. Um, and I'm not sure if the police are actually investigating. I should probably look that up myself. But um, it, they should be, really. Um, it's stupid. The guy, um, you know, he scurried away as quickly as he arrived on the scene. So it's clear that he didn't actually want to fight Ramsdale. He just wanted to get involved and... Listen, I think Mikel Arteta summed it up very well when he said he didn't want that to take 0.000001% away of the enjoyment. And um, it has, sadly, but we should try not to let it. No, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't uh, allow it to take anything away. It's just a talking point. I don't think anything more than that in the game. And hopefully we see the retrospective action that needs to be taken uh, with the fan. Um, very quickly, another kind of FA thing, because obviously we talked quite heavily about the FA charges. Spurs players surrounded the referee on a number of occasions throughout the game. In short, are you expecting any retrospective action from the FA to charge them for what was argued? I think I saw five, which is one more than the players that surrounded the referee against Oxford. So surely that's like a fifth worse. Than they should yeah. £1,000 fine, surely. 50k instead of 40k. Um, 
Personally, I don't think it will happen. And I think it would be hypocritical of me to say, I don't think Arsenal should be punished for it and then say Spurs should be punished for it, even though it's Spurs. Um, mm. I think it's ridiculous that you start punishing individual teams for surrounding the referee. And uh, despite what Richard Key seems to think, it's not because of Mikel Arteta that these issues are happening. It's just because uh, it seems to be a narrative that Arsenal are this sort of rowdy, aggressive team. It's not the case. Um, every team does it, as we saw yesterday. And I don't really think any team should be fined for it. Either you find them all or you find none at all. And personally, I'm more towards the latter. Yeah, I agree. Um it's, it's, it's a strange one. They've they've sent now the the bar. They've set it so low that now Arsenal fans have got this thing to to link back to every single game. Um, outside of 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 that, and now moving into more specific performances, others. The midfield I thought was was brilliant. You know, Thomas Partey, Martin Odegaard. Both of them had long range efforts. One scored. The other, I was desperate to see go in, and unfortunately hit the post. Probably one of the sweetest struck volleys you'll see. Um, Granite Xhaka as well I thought led the team there's a brilliant video doing the rounds on social media at the moment about how in the warm up he was kind of speaking to the players really geeing them up those three have just kind of solidified Arsenal's title charge from the middle third which if you look back over previous seasons the midfield's always been an area of, of question at Arsenal and now we've really got this established unit there Yeah and if we're talking about the midfield we should mention Alex Inchenko as well you mentioned him before but the way he drifted in to he's not a left it. back, is he? He's, he's just not, a number, he's a number ten. Yeah. He's a number ten. But the yeah. way he <laughs> to make it a four on two against Spurs, and I almost felt sorry at the end for um, for Pape Matasar on his first ever Premier League start, and Hoybier just having to run around chasing shadows. I mean, they they were they were incredible those four, and mm. they're technically gifted anyway. But if they're allowed to have the space and the time to pick their heads up and make passes, you saw the damage they could do. Partey was crucial to both goals, distributing from deep, which is what we know he can do. Um, he wasn't perfect, but he was he was he was pretty pretty good on the day. And you know his ability to to draw players in and wriggle away and free up opposition. Sorry, uh, his teammates was is is a skill that. Arsenal really lack when he's not in the team. And Zinchenko was superb. Odegaard, obviously fantastic. And, you know, the, the questions as to whether he's the best player in the Premier League do come up again. There's uh, no question, there's no, there's no question. He, he just is. It's just how it goes. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I mean, listen, it's very difficult to think of anyone who is better than him right now. Mm. And when he's adding goal scoring like that to his game, then, you know, what, the sky is the limit for a player like him. Um Granit Xhaka as well, we'd have to mention, of course, was 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 very impressive. I, I don't think he necessarily needed to influence the game offensively as, as much as he usually does. But for a guy who can, you know, in the past has easily got emotionally sucked into situations. And going back to that Ramsdale incident, it was very funny to see Mikel Arteta sprinting back towards him to drag him away from uh, from the melee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He managed to keep his head pretty well, I thought. And, mm. you know, you could tell it's sort of like, uh, like a sort of like, I guess getting very close to the win, sailing very close to the win, but he just about managed mm. to to tread that line on the tightrope, and I think he did it pretty well. Right, the right amount of edge in a derby, yeah. But also the right amount of discipline, and it was it was crucial to us not winning the game. Yeah, two things on Jacka. First one. Jack has the since obviously moving into this this area of, of work, he's the first Arsenal player I came into contact with at London Colony. Incredibly intimidating, just enters the room, has presence. Like, you know, I'm, he is a player that does commands that presence about him, whether it's a room, whether it's on the field. Second thing, should Romero have been sent off for taking him out on a yellow? I thought the first yellow card shouldn't have been a yellow card, so I'm going to say no. 
but um, it was but a being second. on a yellow. Doing it was a, it was a yellow that yeah. foul, but the first yellow shouldn't have been a yellow. So okay, fair enough. Very balanced indeed. I suppose <laughs> maybe we'd be talking differently if we'd have lost two 0 <laughs> Maybe, maybe. maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, yes. So that's that's obviously the midfield. The other area of the defence. Uh, I mean, Harry Kane's always been a a threat against us and of course had the narrative of being able to uh go level is it with Jimmy Greaves I think um in this game didn't manage that because Gabriel and Ben White and Saliba just pocketed Kulisevsky and Kane and Son Saliba's obviously come out and spoken after the game and there's a piece of which you can read uh, a lot of the quotes around his his contract situation he says that he's happy he says that these types of games, you know, of course, can help him in regards to deciding to stay at the club. Do you feel as though when you hear him speak how he has spoken after the game that maybe all of this pent-up angst and um, fear, I guess, that he might move on is maybe a little bit overblown at this stage? Um, it's hard to say that with a player who's got 18 months left on their contract mm. and their player who's so key to what Arsenal are doing. They obviously did trigger that contract extension um, just before the new year. What I would say on Saliba, and I asked Mikel Arteta about this earlier uh, in the season, uh, what, last mm. month, what he said in terms of the noises he was putting out, saying the player wants to stay with us, I want to keep him, I feel pretty confident that he'll stay. Arteta doesn't do that generally unless he's pretty secure that the player is going to stay. In the past when he's done it, think back to the Aubameyang contract, think back to uh, Eddie Nketiah, think back to... Uh, Saka, Martinelli, etc. He's always very confident in coming out and saying, you know, putting the front foot forward, I think these guys are going to stay, I want them to stay. And when he does that, generally it does come off. And Saliba was really good yesterday. I think he benefited from the fact he had a bit of time off against Oxford. I think maybe coming back into things as hectically as they were around the Christmas schedule probably was not good for him. And he looked like he had his focus back. He was so switched on the whole game, whereas in the West Ham game and the uh, the Brighton game, obviously two errors from lapses of concentration. None of that on, on Sunday. And it's looking good for his contract. I mean, he said the same thing a few months ago when these contract talks started. You know, the club are in conversations with with him, with his representatives over a deal. He wants to stay by, according to Mikel Arteta. And, you know, fingers crossed they can get that done because tying him down, if you tie him down, you've already tied down Gabriel. You've got oh. for the next five years, um, in my opinion, pardon me, the best uh, centre-back defensive pairing in the Premier League. And also, I just want to make a point that I think we were talking about Erdegaard as, you know, best player in the Premier League. Is there a better defender in the Premier League than Gabriel right now? I can't think of one. I mean... Levi Colwell maybe at Brighton is the only other one. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, I'm not having it. And the reason, I, I, I think... At the start of the season, we were we were critical of Gabriel. He was he was the 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 sort of the, the guy in the team that we used to we used to beat, and now he's he's proving what an excellent player he is. You know, since his latest trip to Turkey to sort out his hairline again, he is he's gone to another level. And I don't want to take credit for that on behalf of Turkey, but you know, if he's if he's gone up another level, then <laughs> there are no issues on my part. And I think he's he's such an intelligent player because the way Zinchenko comes in, and we spoke about Zinchenko being Arsenal being more defensively effective with him in the side. But the way he tucks in means that Gabriel essentially has to do two jobs at the back. He has to play basically left back and left centre back as well. And he does it so well. He's such yeah. an athlete. He's physically, you know, imperious. Kane didn't have a sniff, as you said, all game. And that kind of stuff is is, is very difficult to find. And when you look back to transfers, there's a reason that Mikel Arteta's first sort of 
big transfer, if you like, in the summer uh, when he first when he first joined yeah. was Gabriel Magalhaes because mm. he felt he needed that kind of player, and he's he's taken the Arsenal defence to another level, and I think he's been superb for the most part of this season. And I just wanted to make sure we gave him his flowers because he he fully deserves them. Absolutely, no, I think that's fair. I. I... I, as I said, I think we talked about this last week actually, and on the podcast, you know, I wrote that piece about Gabriel saying how well, criticism early in the season was just so far fetched because mm. of what he was bringing to the team. And yes, he makes a couple of mistakes, but in this, since the World Cup anyway, he has eradicated those mistakes in his game. He's been he's covering a larger area of the field than William Saliba because William Saliba's got Ben White to his right, whereas Gabriel has to cover an area that is vacated by Zinchenko pushing forward into midfield. So. All of those things, I, I think he's been fantastic. You know, I think that the moment, you know, if you look across the season, Saliba's been brilliant. But if you're looking at who's been better at the two across the season, I think Saliba is now leading by only a slight margin um, between the two. So very happy indeed. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to to what ultimately he ends the season with. So that's going to be really important. Uh just last word on the derby. That does obviously put us eight points clear at the top of the table. Um, yes, you can smile for those listening on audio. I said that and Kaya beamed. <laughs> it is a great place to be. Manchester City, of course, lost to Manchester United in the Manchester derby. We play Man United at the weekend. I listened to Gary Neville reluctantly after the game and he said uh, he's tipping Man City to still win and for Arsenal to finish behind Man United now. Goodness me, he knows I'm that. Man United. Yes, he said we'll finish thirds. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, if Manchester United win their game in, uh, say game in hand, they, they will go on to 19 games, uh, of course, with their game against Palace. If they to win that and then beat us, they would only be three points behind us. So it isn't as close as, you know, it, it might feel. But that's a big ask for them to beat us. How are you feeling going into that game? Um, I, I so with with United, I watched them in the Manchester derby, and they obviously got a great result. Confident, mm. confident, controversial, sorry, uh, circumstances yeah. around that very, very goal, which I think anyone who's ever seen football knows that that's offside, and that rule needs to be very quickly from the officials. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't impressed with them in the sense that I didn't see a team that is going to come out and beat teams in the way Arsenal do in terms of they go wherever it is and they impose themselves on the game. They play football their way, no matter what the opposition is. What I did see, though, is a team that's very well drilled. Whereas in the past, Manchester United have gone into those big games and it's not looked clear what players are supposed to be doing or they don't know what their jobs are. You can't say that at this Manchester United team. And as much as it was a, there were a lot of growing pains for Ten Hag when he first came in, He's looking, he's looking like he's got this team playing the way he wants for right now. And you compare them to the Arsenal project when Nicola Teta first came in. They weren't offensively superb, and United's goal difference is only plus eight. They're relying very heavily on Marcus Rashford, and if you stop him, you probably will stop Manchester United from scoring. But also, when Nicola Teta first came into Arsenal, the thing you'd say about them was that's a very well-drilled side. Mm. They're not... You know, everyone's doing their jobs to the best of their abilities. I think Ten Hag's got this Manchester United side doing something similar. And since Ronaldo's left, I think they've gone to another level. I think getting him out of the club was a really smart move from them. And he'd become quite toxic and he was affecting all the other players. And it's no coincidence that Rashford's scoring run has come since quite literally Cristiano Ronaldo last played for Manchester United. He's scored in every game since. Mm. However, if Arsenal don't feel confident now of being Manchester United at home, I don't know when they will be. I think the counter-attacking threat Man U pros, uh, pose sorry, is, is definitely a problem for Arsenal. And I think they are the type of team that could beat Arsenal. But Arsenal have to be confident. They're playing the best, some of the best football we've seen for them probably in the last couple of decades. And 
it's it's you can't rule Man United out. You can't say Arsenal will definitely win because of the reasons I've outlined. But I, I do think that um, Arsenal should be confident going into that game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I look forward to it. I think it's going to be a very interesting game. I think the Emirates is going to be an absolute wall of noise going into it because the, the games between Arsenal and Man United are historically always like that. So let's see uh, what happens. Uh, let's move on to the next section of the show, uh, which of course revolves around it being the January transfer window and our famous and happily discussed topic of transfers. Uh, the first place to start is an obvious one. Uh, since we last spoke, the... The, the Mikhailo Mudrik situation has been thrown up into the air, twisted round and slammed back into Arsenal's faces um, in this period of time. Last time we spoke, of course, the word close uh, was a continuously used bit of terminology because it was. Um, right, Arsenal were indeed closing on that agreement with, with uh, Shakhtar Donetsk. Now, since we've recorded, and of course, in the day before we played Tottenham in the evening of that Saturday, it was revealed that a delegation from Chelsea had travelled to Poland to basically tell the Ukrainian side that they were going to pay exactly what they wanted and were going to blow Arsenal out the water in regards to that deal. And that is exactly what happened. And they have since confirmed the signing of Madrid. We've also heard recently in the last hour before recording this podcast that the Shakhtar Donetsk president will be donating a significant portion of that transfer fee uh, to the Ukrainian war effort as well and an expectation that Chelsea will play a friendly in Ukrainian Donetsk as he describes it um, in the future with Mudrik of course returning therefore to play there can I just get your reaction Kaya to, to this entire saga and also ultimately where it leaves Arsenal too yeah first and foremost the, the bits at the end you're talking about there in terms of the donations to the Ukrainian war effort and the friendly I think that's that's fantastic and you know fair play to Chelsea and fair play to Shakhtar that's a a good move and a, a good uh, a good thing to be doing. And I've seen a lot of Arsenal fans sort of making light of the Ukrainian invasion ever since the Mudrik stuff on social media. And I don't think that's funny. And I think we should probably try no. to pull that out because it's, yeah. it's it's pretty disgusting. And what's happening in Ukraine is totally irrelevant and far more important than football. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully those guys will, will stop that um, relatively soon. Um, but when it comes to the transfer... Uh, yeah, we said the other day when we, we recorded this podcast, I think it was on Thursday, Arsenal were confident. They were confident. That's what I, I'd heard. They were they were confident things were moving in the right direction. Um, personal terms of Mudrik were agreed. They weren't going to be a problem. He obviously indicated that he wanted to come to Arsenal, very obviously on social media, as we all know. And Chelsea came in with an offer that Arsenal got blown out of the water. And there's a lot of frustration because Mudrik was Arsenal's top target and speaking to people inside the Arsenal um, sort of club, there is a disappointment that they've, they've lost and a, a bit of anger towards Chelsea because this is the second time this happened this window with Joao Felix, they were in for him and Chelsea came in and paid a loan fee that Arsenal weren't willing to pay. But at the same time, there's an acceptance that this is a project from Arsenal and they have a policy that policy is not overpaying for players. So uh, I wrote a piece about this and I think most people seem to be quite understanding of it, that Arsenal, they don't want to be held to ransom for players. We've seen it in the past. They've made costly mistakes, costly long-term commitments to players that haven't worked out. And as far as I'm concerned, showing that you're willing to walk away from a deal is sometimes as important as showing you're willing to up your prices to, to meet the deal. So I think in this case, Let's be honest, Mikhail Madrid has played 65 professional games in his career. He's not worth 100 million. He might be one day, but he's not worth it now. And I totally get where Shakhtar were coming from. They had their fee. They wanted it. 
Arsenal had just about got them to a position where they were willing to come down a little bit on that fee. But if Chelsea want to do that, and if that's what they want to do in terms of recruitment policy, there's not much Arsenal can do. There's other players out there. Arsenal wouldn't have been willing to offer him a seven and a half, potentially eight and a half year contract. Mm. Rodrick has gone for that instead. And listen, if you're a player choosing to join Chelsea over Arsenal right now is, is questionable. And maybe you look at that and you, you see the players' motives and you wonder maybe would that guy have been the right fit for Arsenal at all. But also, I think it's commendable that Arsenal aren't budging from their policy of saying, look, we have a valuation for this player. We're not going to be pushed around. We're not going to be entering any bidding wars. And we're not going to overpay. And when you're a wealthy club like Arsenal, well, that's important. And look at Manchester City. In the summer, they went in for Kukurea, for example. Mm. Brighton wanted more than their valuation. They walked away. Big teams do this. Liverpool have done this in the past. Um, the teams that haven't have been Manchester United and Chelsea. And look where they are. So I think Arsenal are in a position now where they're, they're establishing themselves as shrewd operators in the transfer market. They're tough negotiators. And obviously, everyone's upset that they didn't get their main target. But... In the long run, it might be for the best. And there's other players out there, and I'm sure we'll get on that into the, onto that in the second half when we, we get your questions coming in. But, um, yeah, I think mm. personally, I'm fine with it. I don't know what you think about it, but I, I think, you know, if Arsenal had a valuation, Shakhtar wanted more, Chelsea were willing to meet it, then not an awful lot you can do. Yeah, look, the bottom line is I'm gutted. Like, I, I really wanted him to join Arsenal because I think he's a fantastic talent and I'm worried about what he will do at uh, Chelsea. I hope he flops significantly. I hope he <laughs> fails catastrophically at Chelsea for obvious reasons. Um, but I fear he won't. Um, with Arsenal and with the way in which we've gone about this, I think the biggest question mark from the fan base isn't about us missing out on him. It's not about um, the money necessary on the side of things. I think the biggest criticism of Arsenal in this is the time that's been used in this window with this situation. Now, for me, I don't have that criticism of the club because it's very obvious that they were convinced that Mudrick really wanted this move. And that's what they were leaning on the entire time. And that's the difference between this and last year with Vlaovic. Vlaovic had no indication that he wanted to move to Arsenal because he was desperate to go to Juventus. Same with Rafinha in the summer as well. Absolutely. And and Chelsea were the victims of that as well with Rafinha, of course, too. So the difference being here is that Shakhtar Donets are the, the differing factor in this scenario, is that they have been stubborn on this valuation. And to be honest, Arsenal were pursuing this because they knew and the indications they were getting from the Ukrainian side is that the offer, especially the final one that they put in, was getting to a point where they were going to accept it because Chelsea hadn't come in with a bid at all until they blew them out the water with that massive, massive offer. Um, and so because of that, you know, although I think that was the second offer officially that they put in. They put in a one similar to, to us, I think, in terms of the, the, the uh, I think it was the second or third one that we put in. They put in one similar, but then they came in with this this one on the last day before he moved. And and that was enough for them to turn. There's, there's been whispers that Madrid apparently, like messages were made to see if Arsenal would match it because Madrid's desire and preference was to move to, to Arsenal. But as you said, they had their valuation and they weren't going to be drawn into a bidding war. And I, I like you, can respect that. And, you know, I've had some satirical comments from Chelsea fans saying Madrid's are blue. 
And I reply quite simply with Madrid is 10th because, you know, that is where we're at right now is Arsenal <laughs> have been savvy and diligent with what they've done in the market. And it's got us to where we are right now. And that is a huge part. It's obviously Mikel Arteta's coaching and the squad building and the turning around of players like Xhaka and the improvement of his existing players like Martinelli and Saka and Smith-Rowe and Nketiah and um, Saliba, of course, and Tierney to a lesser extent as well. But the recruitment has been a crucial part of that. And, you know, in 2021 in particular, when we signed a record amount uh, in terms of what we spent but it was on across a lot of really savvy well bought and well invested moves for players that are all having a big part in where we're moving towards so I'm very confident about what we're doing in the market and I I don't think we're necessarily done this window there's obviously it's going to be a it's going to be a challenge a struggle and we're going to talk about that in a second with the questions coming in but you know I'm confident that they won't waste a window because Arteta has made it very clear that they can't afford to do that we just got to hope that they can find the alternatives. Speaking of which, uh, let's go to the questions that we're getting coming in. Now, what I would say is that what we're trying to do and encourage you guys to, to do to be able to ask us questions is that on football.london will obviously be producing a QA and uh, article in which you can submit questions for the podcast on that. So in weeks that go uh, ahead, and of course myself and Kai do these shows, we'll make sure to tweet out the article where you can leave your questions for the podcast. We did do that today. It was quite last minute. And thank you to those that have indeed added some questions and a fair few of you have so thank you so much for those that have sent these in um first one uh comes uh from uchida who says with the situation between trossard and brighton do you think that this is impossible for arsenal to push a transfer for mitoma might be a bit biased but i think he'll be a great option for arsenal so two parts there i mean obviously this trossard situation is as it is but clearly uchida prefers mitoma i would rather see him join than the belgian yeah, um, I, I, I agree. Completely agree. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I got my words out there. Uh, yes, I completely agree. I think Matoma is a, a good player. Uh, I think he'll go on to be. You and I were both sat next to someone at Brighton. We went to the uh, the Amex Stadium. He was telling us he's going to be the next big sale out of Brighton and Hove Albion. We've obviously already bought a player in Ben White from there. We have a good relationship with the club. I think it makes sense. Um, Brighton are very canny in the transfer market. They sell high, they buy low, and Matoma is another example of that. Whether I'd, I'd look to buy him right now, I'm not 100% sure because I think he needs to cook a little bit more before he's fully up and ready for Arsenal. Uh, I think it's just yeah. a, little, a little bit more left. I think he's just a little bit raw still. Um, Trossard, I wouldn't personally go near, just an opinion, although you know there's reports suggesting that um, Arsenal have, have been offered him. I personally haven't heard that. But it would make very little sense in terms of Arsenal's transfer strategy. And I think as much as we're praising them for not buying Madrid and not, you know, going over the top to buy Madrid, then going out and spending what you'd assume would be a decent amount of money because Brighton won't want to lose Trossard mm. at this stage. 25 is the before, reported figure. There you go. Six months before the end of his his contract. To me, that makes no sense. And he's also uh, not the age demographic of the player Arsenal have been have been looking to sign. So Mitoma this this month, I, I can most almost certainly say it won't happen but you know you can never say with 100% certainty uh Trossard I'd say I'd, I'd like for it not to happen personally from an Arsenal perspective but listen you know things can change and who knows what will happen there 
fantastically named North London is red uh, in the comment section of the article says, um, could Arsenal make a move for Wilfred Zaha this month? He is out of contract in the summer. Premier League proven and Crystal Palace probably won't ask for too much money. Uh, just on top of that as well, simply Avaliani in the chat uh, says there, Zaha 100%. So uh, we actually had a brief chat about this this morning, didn't we? Um, so yeah, your thoughts on, on Zaha as a potential option? I disagree with the question uh, in a sense when he says, I don't think Palace will ask for a lot of money. I think Palace will ask for a lot of money. And I think rightly so, because if they lose Wilfred Zaha at this stage of the season for them, this late in the window, mm. they're in big trouble. And as much as I think Patrick Vieira has turned them into a much better team than when Roy Hodgson was in charge, they're still heavily reliant on Wilfred Zaha because he's their best player by, by some distance. And bear in mind, Zaha's on reportedly 120 grand a week. Uh, that's a lot of wages and... I know you've got your opinion on, on the salary, so I won't, I won't sort of preempt that. But uh, I do think that Arsenal would have to personally match it with the player being so close to the end of his contract. I personally think he's a fantastic player and I'd, I'd love to see him added to the Arsenal squad. I think it's great that he can play as a number nine as well. I think that would, that would cover a lot of bases for Arsenal. Whether they'd be willing to do that and break from their, as we spoke about before with Trossard, break from their sort of transfer policy of investing in youth players who can be sold in the future, we'll have to wait and see. But listen... There are clearly admirers of um, Wilfred Zaha at Arsenal. There's players, there's people who are still around from when Unai Emery tried to sign him who are, will probably be putting forward good uh, reports for him. But personally, I'd be surprised if it happened, even though I think he'd be a superb addition. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, with, with my view on Zaha, I, if you'd have asked me this question a month ago, I would have said, no, don't, no chance. Like, I really I don't see it. And I, I kind of, there's a lot of Trossard similarities with the age profile side of things and that argument. The way in which I kind of have shifted a bit with my view is because of losing out on Mudrick in particular has a big impact on this because I looked at Mudrick as kind of the perfect profile. And with Zaha, if you can get him, say, on an 18-month contract with an option of a further year if things go well, I think that's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily overcommitting in terms of the length of time. The question mark for me is obviously the wages and the finances involved in the, in the deal. Palace, I agree with you, are probably going to ask for something big, probably upwards of 20 to 25 million pounds to, to do this for a player with, as we say, just six months left on his deal that you could get for nothing in the summer. The question mark you've got to ask is if Zaha wins you the title by coming in, that money looks like nothing. But it's a big if. It's, it's a massive if, and you don't know whether or not he is. What I would say is I think Arsenal are more likely to win the title with a squad that includes Zaha than one that doesn't bring anyone in between now and the end of the window. Um, and so I think that's maybe what you have to weigh up. But there are options out there, and I think ones that certainly fit the age profile, the strategy that Arsenal are looking to go towards. So that's what you've got to do. If you can't get hold of those players that fit it, you then move to Zaha. So I think if there's a list, he's on it for me but maybe not the top of my lists in terms yeah. of those players. I think, I think we're agreed in the sense that we do think Arsenal need one more. I think up front, they need yeah, one more. Smith-Rowe is just back from uh, injury. Jesus, uh, Ted said he's going to be out for months still. And Reese Nelson is still injured and we don't know when he's back. And I think Arsenal need one more. I think they need ideally a left footer who can cover for Saka on the right. And that's another issue I had with the Madrid deal. This he was another left winger and how was that going to work? But... Listen, Saka, Martinelli and, and Ketty have been superb these past four or five games, but they need a bit of a rest and they need a bit of a break and they fatigue as games go on and having an option off the bench to really help them with that, that's, I think, what pushes Arsenal over the line when you look at Premier League title conversation. Great. Do you have a question uh, on your yes. end? Yes, let me ask you a question. And this is from Tejas, uh, one, 1987, sorry. 
Barcelona's Frank Kessier hasn't featured much at all for the club. Is there any chance Arsenal will sign him? Uh, in short, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't think Barcelona will sell just after signing him in the summer on a free. I think they see him as good depth for their midfields uh, and good competition for their midfield. Yes, he's not played all that much. And to be honest, there's a lot of talk about why he was leaving Milan considering their project looking so good at the time. And it was a lot to do with money. And he's on a, a very good wage uh, at Barcelona. So that in itself is going to come into play if Arsenal were looking at him. I'm not sure if he's the immediate impact competitor to Partey that we are looking for or need at the moment. Um, I haven't seen enough to, to be categoric about it, um, but I haven't been able to see much because he's not played that much this season. So, yeah, I, I lean towards no. I think there are better options out there. I, you know, I think there are players, even arguably in the Premier League, that Arsenal could be looking to. And that's something that I want Arsenal to be doing more of now. They are at the top of the table is looking in-house in their own league at players that are experienced there. So they can get that kind of immediacy that we see Man City do with players that they sign, like Carl Walker, like Jack Grealish, you know, players that are coming in from other Premier League clubs that, that are going to push them towards uh, further success in the league. So Kessier is one that I will put on the burner, the back burner for now. So It's interesting yeah. that you're talking about backups to Thomas Partey because that feeds in beautifully to our question for him, uh, the righteous anger of Craig Burley, which is a fantastic name. Um, <laughs> he says, Arsenal need cover for Thomas Partey. Who do you see as the most viable option should they go after in the that they should go after in the January transfer window? So I suppose uh, he's asking you to put a name on uh, the Premier League players that Arsenal should be taking a look at. Now, Arsenal have been linked to a few um, in the lead-up. Ibrahim Abamba is one that's been talked about a lot that Arsenal supposedly have a like towards. Not heard of him. Have you not? He plays no. for uh, Vittoria Guimaraes in Portugal. Uh, he's recently been called up to work with uh, Roberto Mancini's Italian senior side. Um, he's 20, 21 years of age, plays as a six, very mobile, has a lot of the similar characteristics to Thomas Partey and the club. I said to be you know, looking at him as a potential option. Of course, we were linked with Danilo and uh, we called our interest seemingly in him. And he's often uh, well, recently gone to, to Nottingham. Well, it's expected to be completed very soon between Danilo and Nottingham Forest. It's tough because that market for a midfielder and in this specific window, because you want someone that can come in and give you something between now and the end of the season. Otherwise, wait until the summer and sign Declan Rice, in my opinion. That's what I would do. I would wait and sign Declan Rice because I think he's definitely accessible for Arsenal in the summer, especially if we win the league. Um, and with Chelsea 10th and him wanting Champions League football and him, them being you know the team that really wanted him, Arsenal have Champions League football if and when they get it next season. So why not go and gazump them? That would be quite nice to do that to, to Chelsea. But... Uh, it's difficult now. And this is why I wasn't that keen on Danilo, because if you ask me the question, we play Man City tomorrow, Thomas Partey is not available. Who do I start, Mohamed Elneny or Danilo? I'm starting Mohamed Elneny because I rely on his experience. I rely on his consistency and I know what he's going to bring to the team. And so if you're going to find somebody in that deep midfield position, you've got to find someone that's going to answer that question. It's The answer's not going to be Mohamed Elneny. And I think that's difficult to do in this window, especially if it means it stops you from signing somebody in the summer, uh, which could be really key. And I know that people don't want to hear that because we know what we've got this season. I think in the forward line, it's a different conversation. We absolutely need someone there. But here, I think it's very difficult to sign somebody because I just don't see the options out there available. I think people also forget that Zinchenko can play in midfield and having him there and Tierney the option to play him at left back instead, I think he's an option for us. But 
we haven't got any info on El Nenny's injury and how serious that might be. It's said to be a knock, but we have got no information if it's a bad knock or a, or a yeah. all we've heard is it's minor um i'll try and chase yeah. that up and get some more information on that um as soon as i can but uh, what i would say and a player who springs to mind immediately when we're talking backup for thomas Partey, um and actually I, i'm gonna take issue with the word backup because i, I think Arsenal's yeah. problem so is they're going for num- a, a number two player as opposed to a competitor. player who's the needle forward a competitor mm. exactly so if you're looking for a competitor, um, we've mentioned Barcelona, we've mentioned Frank Kessier being wanting out, but I personally, I, I like the look of Frankie Dion. Oh, I knew you were going to say Frankie Dion. <laughs> I can't help myself. I think he'd cost a lot of money, don't get me wrong. And yeah, yeah. He'd probably be on high wages and whether Arsenal view that as financially uh, sound as a move, I don't know. But we're, we're talking dream transfers and dream number six competitors for Thomas Partey, Frankie Dion. Don't get much yeah. better than that. And you bring him into the squad, that's a proper team you got there. And mm. yeah, I think Barcelona are financially struggling and they, they showed they want to get rid of him in the summer. So, you know, yeah. Arsenal, who knows? Who knows if they'd be able to take advantage of that? Yeah, the other the other name that comes to mind is, is Ibrahima Sangara uh, at PSV. Um Ivory International only recently signed a new contract worth remembering so those thinking oh we can sign him for that 32 million pound release clause no we can't doesn't exist anymore he signed a new deal and that's gone so he would be expensive um, but I like a look of him a lot I I really respect the move he made from uh, Toulouse to PSV because it's not in terms of a league you'd think more so that's a step back but actually you went to play at a high competitive level with PSV in Europe and he's done very, very well indeed. So he's he's one to keep an eye on uh, as well. But, you know, all we can dream and try and go for Frankie de Jong instead. Let me dream, uh, Sam. Let me dream. I'd always. You know, I'm never, I'm never going to try and turn that down, mate. So if, uh, <laughs> if we want to dream of Frankie de Jong, absolutely go for it. Um, I mean, I, I kind of want to ask you this around the idea of, of Rafinha because I want to tackle it because it's obviously been mentioned uh, he is a player that I know a lot of people have suggested that Arsenal could go for. He's been one that uh, supposedly Edu, almost immediately after missing out on Madrid, kind of had a little bit of a, a consult with his good friend, Deco, who is the agent of Rafinha. Um, but it doesn't seem optimistic, does it? No, the player came out uh, yesterday after Barcelona's Super Cup win and said, I hope this is the first of many trophies of Barcelona. That doesn't, to me, scream of a man who wants to leave the club and it was so clearly his dream in the summer to go to Barcelona I'd be shocked if he gave mm. up on it after six months maybe he's not made the impact that he would have been hoping for straight away personally I've actually not been keeping tabs on his former Barcelona as probably as much as I should have been but two goals two assists there you so go far. he probably would have wanted to do more in his, in his short spell there but you know he's still in a position where he's starting for Brazil at the World Cup um, he's a very influential player on the national team scene he's got his dream club move I don't see why he'd want to give that up right now. I think if, it, if it's his dream move, he'll surely want to give it at least a full season before giving up on that. Uh, maybe in the summer, I don't know. But I'd, I'd be surprised if Arsenal can pull that off because he seems very settled where he is now, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately indeed. Because I, I think he could have been a viable option. And he was clearly yeah, a yeah. player that Arsenal really wanted in the summer. They really appreciated his profile. So it's understandable that they would go and check if that is still an option potentially for this window. I think Barca, considering their financial situation, would have asked for a silly amount of money more than they paid uh, Leeds. So it might not have been that viable in that sense. Uh, that sense. Uh, Jonas on Twitter, at uh, Giratz Jonas, says, uh, Fresneda interest, is it true? Alternatives for Mudrick lined up or do we prioritise other positions? Focusing on that Fresneda part of the question, he is the name that seems most viable right now. You know, he's the name that's being linked most heavily um 
I know a little bit about him uh, from doing a little bit of research in the last 24 hours. Uh, the description I got from speaking to someone who knows him quite well was that he's a central midfielder that's playing at right back, which if you want a definition of like what Arteta likes in a fullback, that's kind of what he likes is a midfielder that can play at fullback. So 18-year-old, very exciting. A lot of clubs lost across Europe at the top level are tracking him. Kyle, what's the latest? The, 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 the truth is that Arsenal are interested. Um, they have shown an interest in Ivan Fresneda. He is only 18, as you say, so he'd be an investment for the future. It's worth noting Arsenal's current position at right-back is they do have two very good right-backs and um, Cedric also is in the squad and is sort of still yet to move on. If maybe they choose to let Cedric go, uh, Fulham obviously are interested, although they're still yet to make an offer and they are considering other options. And it also is worth considering that Kenny Tete is back from his injury, so Fulham are as desperate for a right-back as they were. Yeah. In the past, obviously, Cedric was attracting interest from Bayer Leverkusen and Villarreal as well as we reported on Football London, but that hasn't appeared to materialise just yet. I think if Cedric goes, maybe Fresneda happens this window. If not, I'd be personally inclined to say it's more likely to happen in the summer, but don't hold me to that. Um, I think, like you say, very exciting player, six foot, you know, the profile of player that Mikel Arteta likes in that position, very young, very raw but someone who can definitely be moulded into the future. I would say, though, Arsenal do have two very exciting young right-backs in Britt Norton Cuffey and Rua Waters. Mm. It's worth considering about them before they look to go and bring in a, another player in that position. But if that's what Mikel Arteta feels that they need, and if he's a right foot as Inchenko, then I think we'd all be here for it. So, yeah, fingers crossed uh, they can get that one over the line. But as you say, Newcastle interested, plenty of other Premier League teams interested as well. So not necessarily an easy one to pull off, but you'd like to think that Arsenal will be able to to bring in a player of, of that calibre. Yeah. Um, have you got any more questions or are you out at this stage? Let's have a look quickly. Um, just going through. Um, I've got one while you're waiting if you want me to throw it in. I've got one here oh, from Cade, which is actually previewing a, a piece we've got coming out uh, a little bit, in a little bit, uh, on what positions we think Arsenal... So Icecade, at Icecade official says, which positions do you think Arsenal are going for this winter? And are you aware of any player targets? We've already discussed the player targets. So I'm, I'm going to get you on where you think Arsenal need to strengthen most uh, this January. Mm. Well, I should say that we have a piece coming out on Football.London soon uh, with myself, uh, Kaya and Tash all contributing to about where we all think um, we should be strengthening in. Where I think we will is I think they will still continue to look for the forwards as a priority. Um, if they're able to get in that forwards, then uh, the midfield, I think, is obviously the next area that they would look to if there are indeed any available. The player whose name we've not mentioned on, on the show so far is Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. If you're looking at a kind of marquee player that could move this window, he is one that... There are whispers and suggestions around him. Um, there's been whispers in Italy about potential loan with an obligation to buy, which if is true, I would jump on immediately. I don't really know why. And, and the fact that no one has makes me feel as though there might not be as much kind of legitimacy uh, to that, let's say. But uh, who knows? We'll see what happens with him between now and the end of the window. But a player that's always been linked with a move to the Premier League or, and, and Real Madrid as well and, and never, ever happened. So let's see with that. But yeah, I think, the forward line will be the priority. 
and if we get manage to get that in good time, they might have time to to move for a, a midfielder. We'll have to see. Um, we'll finish on this question from uh, Yanis. Uh, it's been sent in on Twitter by at alpha underscore m underscore wolf. Um, Kudus, Mohamed Kudus has played at centre forward, attacking midfield, right wing, and has been exceptional. Uh, the Ghanaian international was at the World Cup, of course. Do you think this could be a viable target? And how possible would it be? How much do you think he would cost? How would you think of Mohamed Kudus as a player? Um, yeah, I saw a little bit of him in the World Cup. I've seen a little bit of him in the Champions League as well, where he's looked pretty decent for Ajax. Um, do I think Arsenal will get him this window? Not as things stand. There's no concrete interest as far as I'm aware. And um, price-wise, I wouldn't even know where to begin. If, if Ajax are selling Anthony for £90 million, you'd like you'd, you'd think they'd want around the same for a player like Kudus. He's done it at the World Cup and done it in the Champions League, which Anthony hadn't really done. So, yeah, I think they'll, they'll want big money for him. And I, if Arsenal are unwilling to pay that much for Madrid, I'd be surprised they're willing to pay that much for, for Kudis. But let's see. You can never you can never say never in the in the January transfer window, as I often repeat on these, these podcasts, and I will repeat until the January transfer window. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't. You, you cannot categorically put um, a price tag on any of these because it is... Uh, it's impossible to know how how much they would go for. It's impossible to know how likely a move would be at this moment in time until we get any more indication. And the, the reality is right now is that we're still very much in the fallout phase of missing out on Mudrick. And the club are, are going to be reacting to that. We hope they're going to certainly be having talks this week around what they want to do next and how they're going to approach the end of the window. The optimism I think fans should have is the way in which Arteta responded to, to your question yesterday in the press conference um, and that, you know, they're happy with the players they've got. Yes, absolutely. Why wouldn't you be? Look at our players. They're great. Um, but the, the acknowledgement that we need to strengthen and I'd also take, um, you know, confidence in how really forward Arteta has been about saying not wasting windows. Uh, that That is a really big statement from him publicly uh, as a person who doesn't like to talk about transfers specifically. So, yes, I look forward to seeing hopefully a strong end to the window. Um, but thank you so much for everybody that's tuned in to today's show. As I say, if you want to get involved with our future Q&As for these podcasts, we're going to be producing our Q&A articles, which we're going to give you the opportunity to leave your questions for. And we're going to give people priority that do indeed leave the questions in the articles. A lot of you send in them on Twitter as well. I, I, I get that. But if you could send them in via our FL uh, Q&A article, that would mean a lot to us. So thank you so much for doing so. Kaya, thank you so much for joining me as always, my friend. My pleasure. Thank you very much for hosting. You've done a superb job as ever, Tom. I try. I try my best. As good as Ramsdale, they say, are hosting these days. <laughs> Smashing them away. Um, you can follow Kai on Twitter at KaiaKarnak97. You can follow myself at Tom Canton Media. You can follow all of our written work over at football.london. Do please subscribe to the channel. Turn those notifications on. We're on our way already to 41,000 after just hitting 40,000 subscribers on the channel. So thank you for continued support here as always. Uh, you can listen to this obviously on audio platforms as well. If you prefer not to see our faces made for radio, you can do that over there. Um, but uh, other than that, we'll see you again next week. And of course, following through with plenty of shows and content on the channel throughout the week as well and content on the FL website. See you soon. Have a fantastic day, evening, afternoon, wherever you happen to be in the world. And as always, keep following us down the Arsenal way with our views from the club. <laughs>